Hello, I'm Scott Brady with Overland Journal and Expedition Portal. And for this week's episode, I interview Dan Greck. We do the interview at the Overland Expo in Flagstaff, and Dan was actually our very first interviewee. So we interviewed Dan uh, many years ago, actually at Overland Expo East, just before he was getting ready to do his big trip around Australia. So Dan has done several notable expeditions. He drove the length of the Pan American in a two-door soft-top unmodified Jeep Wrangler. And then several years later, he prepared a Jeep JK and he drove that around Africa. He literally uh, nearly circumnavigated the African continent and some incredible insights and stories from that. And then most recently, he built a Jeep Gladiator and drove it around and across Australia multiple times, including the Canning Stock route. We go into some really great conversations around traveling with our parents and spending time with our parents and about the upsides and downsides of solo travel and also how uh, Dan's philosophy for being present during our travels, which is something that I know I need to work on, but he does a great job of sharing some of his tips and tricks for being in the present when you're on these great adventures. So please enjoy my conversation with Dan Greck. This content is brought to you by Overland Journal, our premium quality print publication. The magazine was founded in 2006 with the goal of providing independent equipment and vehicle reviews, along with the most stunning adventures and photography. We care deeply about the countries and cultures we visit and share our experiences freely with our readers. We also have zero advertorial policy and do not accept any advertiser compensation for our reviews. By subscribing to Overland Journal, you're helping to support our employee-owned and veteran-owned publication. Your support also provides resources and funding for content like you are watching or listening to right now. You can subscribe directly on our website at overlandjournal.com. So Dan, thank you so much for being on the podcast again. You were actually our very first podcast guest. And that was for good reason, because of the quality of the trips that you've done and the nature and the way in which you've done them. I just greatly admire so many things about your travels and you as an individual. And in fact, uh, we'll talk about some more of that in a second about your cell phone, because I think that that's a really neat story. But thank you, Dan, so much for being on the podcast today. Oh, it's always a pleasure, Scott. I love uh, bouncing ideas off you. I feel like you have a perspective on this industry that is valuable and I really enjoy like getting to be a part of it. I feel like I'm almost at the cantankerous stage. Well, I so. wasn't going to say it. I've got more gray hair than you. so <laughs> That's because I have no hair. So uh, too funny. Uh, the last time that we, we had you on the podcast, you had just finished an incredible trip around Africa. Uh, nearly circumnavigating the continent. Uh, only th the only reason why you didn't was because of some geopolitical restrictions that made it impossible. But you finished that trip and you did that in your JK. And then you moved to Australia. And let's pick up the story from there. So what inspired you to go to Australia? What was the vehicle that you built? And what did you do when you were there? That's a lot of questions. Yeah. We got all the time you need, man. <laughs> I originally, when I left Australia 20 years ago, I kind of, I went on all these adventures around the world and somewhere along the line, I realized how much I missed my family Yeah, sure. and how much I missed spending time with them. And, and my brother has a couple of little boys now, so I'm an uncle. And as I started dreaming of where I wanted to go next in the world, it didn't even really matter where I was going. I just wanted to include my family. Mm. That became the priority. And then, so it was Australia because that's where they live. Um, and where, where do they live in Australia? Uh, they're in the south, uh, just around from Melbourne, like on the Great Ocean Road. So surfing, beautiful beaches, like really nice place to be. That is a beautiful part of Australia. I, one of the things that I really liked about Melbourne is it, was, it felt like the most international city in the country. Um, you would think that Sydney would be that, but it's not. Yeah. It's, Melbourne just has this, 
I think because it's a little colder, the weather's a little more extreme. Yeah. I think, I think you're right. It, it, people have like a slightly different attitude or people are sort of a bit more like tolerant of, of the weather and, yeah. and all of that. No, it's a really beautiful spot and it's so easy to catch that ferry down to Tasmania. Yeah. And that was a big priority for me because I'd never been to Tasmania. Ah. And actually, I had never been to almost all of Australia. I, I'd ah. only seen a tiny little corner of it. And, and did you grow up there? I did. Yeah, yeah. You were I, born in Australia. Born in Australia. High school, university. Uh, I left when I was about 23. Okay, and that's when you moved to Canada. That's right. Yeah, wow. well, came to the US first, actually. I worked in California for a season at, at Tahoe, like shoveling snow at a ski resort. <laughs> that sounds great. Got addicted. <laughs> yeah, sure. And then, and then I heard Canada has lots of snow. <laughs> so, so I went to Canada <laughs> yeah, for sure. to do the same thing. Oh, that's great. And man. never left. So you, it was kind of a, a returning home for you and... Were you able to do that? Were you able to make that time to be with family in the way that you wanted? Yeah, it was it was really great because basically I just lumped in on my dad and I said, hey, dad, I'm going to live with you for a few months mm-hmm. while I build out the new vehicle. And then on the trip, he came with me on a few different segments. And so he, he had never been in a four-wheel drive before. He'd never driven one. And so to be able to bring him along, you know, like some, some pretty challenging, like low-range technical mm-hmm. terrain and then the canning stock route as well, dad joined me. And had you had you ever spent that much time with your dad as an adult? No, not like that. No. You know, I'm I'm going through a similar thing uh, with my mom passing away last year. You know, I just wanted to be with my dad. I I just you know it's you. I worried about him because they were together for 55 years and soulmates and all of that. And so I've been spending a lot of time with my dad, and I'm loving it. Yeah. Like the other night. Uh, it was just so fun because he's like, hey, we should we should have a beer. And like I, I, I've had one other beer with my dad in my life. And that was in Australia well, when I brought him over there. And it's just it's just been really, really neat to have that time with him. And I I think I could have easily made the mistake of going through my whole life and never having done it. So I, I'm really glad that you got that time with your dad. So Yeah, it's incredible to prioritize, isn't it? And, yeah. and to realize the value and the knowledge and just the fun that comes yeah. from, from spending time with. And, and family, they know how to push your buttons and, and they can, <laughs> like, you know, irk you in, in special ways. Uh-huh. But that makes it special and that makes it memorable. And, and as much as sometimes it's annoying, like there were so many days I, I was working on the new vehicle in, in dad's shed and he'd like, I'd drill a hole in something or, or sort of get to the point of no return. And then he'd be like, oh, okay, I'm going to go now. See you later. <laughs> he'd just like leave me in the deep end and vanish, which at the time was frustrating. But now in hindsight, it's like, yeah, that's who my dad is. And, it was, yeah. and it's funny, you know, and, and I'm happy we, we got to like experience that. And does he, is he still work or is he retired? No, he retired a long time ago. <clears throat> well, yeah. so then you get, you know, you just really got to spend time with him. That's right. We cooked dinner together every oh, single night. Oh, that's fantastic. Like, yeah. And did it end up taking about that three months that you thought, or did it take a little longer? Uh, I think I planned two months and it took about four months uh-huh. in the end. Yeah. And, and COVID shipping delays was was a big problem with that. Yeah. Because Australia was so restricted. Well, it's funny, actually. When I, when I planned the trip, Australia had no COVID. Yeah. Australia had locked their borders. Yeah. And the whole country didn't have a single case. So while we- And were, how would you have been able to go in? You just had to quarantine? Is that the deal? Exactly. Yeah. I, I got oh, I remember in. that. I think you were in a hotel yeah. for two weeks. Yeah. Locked. <laughs> Locked in a hotel room for two weeks. Yeah, that's Could, right. Couldn't even open the window, so no fresh air. Um, but because of my Australian passport, getting in was no problem. I see. That makes sense. That makes sense. So then it took four months to build the vehicle. Let's talk a little bit about what the vehicle was that you chose. Right. And so a controversial choice for Australia, uh, I went with a Jeep Gladiator. Um, and I did that for a number of reasons. Like, obviously, there was so many vehicles to choose from over there, mm-hmm. be it a, a diesel Land Cruiser, be it a Hilux, a Land Rover, like you know, kind of all of the vehicles that we all dream mm. of are available. Yeah. But I realized that sort of all of that had been done or mm. all of that was very well known. Mm. And and in fact, I met people that had Land Cruisers. They were so similarly outfitted, the owners couldn't tell them apart. They <laughs> sure. had all bought exactly the same everything from yeah. the bumpers to the pop-up roof to sure. the suspension. And it, it sort of looked and felt like follow the leader where yeah. they were all just sort of like copying each other. Yeah. And I guess I've always been a bit of a person that maybe I'm a bit of an underdog or I'm a bit of a like, I don't want to just follow the common path. And so I thought- I think you just follow your path. I mean, your first trip through South America, you took a, a short wheelbase- 
two-door soft top Jeep Wrangler. Four-cylinder. Four-cylinder Jeep Wrangler. It was yeah. perfect. No, it was like just no amazing. No fridge, no roof. Yeah, of course. And it was fine. And you made it all the way to Ushuaia. So. Yeah. And, and yeah. so I, I wanted to incorporate that mentality on, on the new trip. Mm. And I thought, what if I go with something that hasn't really been tried in Australia? Mm. Um, and, and Jeep doesn't have the greatest rep- reputation down under. Yeah, sure. And I thought Jeeps have always worked well for me mm-hmm. around the world. So in the back of my mind, I knew that it would, was capable. I knew yeah. it was appropriate. But it was kind of fun to think like I could show Australians that and I could demonstrate it. What what better way to show that a Jeep is capable than, you know, to drive the canning stock route, to, to drive the old Teletrack. One of the things that you said before we hit record was that you couldn't get the diesel in Australia. So you actually bought a gasoline-powered That's right. Gladiator. Yeah, in Australia, you can only get the 3.6 gasoline engine and only the eight-speed auto. That, oh, interesting. Not yeah. even a manual option. No. Um, no, I guess Jeep Australia have just kind of limited down their parts network and, yeah, and sure. what they want to import. So then uh, what, what what were some of the important modifications or the things that you felt worked really well on the Jeep? So I wanted to get as remote as possible. That, that was really my number one goal. And so for me, like carrying more fuel, so auxiliary fuel tank, um, carrying lots of drinking water. So I mm. had a big water tank and filtration set up. How much fuel did you have on board? How many liters? Uh, 150 liters was the total in that vehicle. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, and that was all like under the frame, you know. Yeah, that's tanks. great. So just no fast, no funnels, no. Well, and you would have had to have had quite a few more Jerry's at least for the canning. I did. I carried another five uh, 20 liter Jerry's. Yeah, I bet. So I actually carried 250 liters of fuel. Yeah. For the canning and, and, and for the Simpson Desert. Okay, well. so then when you when you got into Kinawarachi, how much fuel did you have left? Actually, a lot. Actually, about 100 liters. That's impressive. So so you found then that that 3.6, as long as you weren't really running it hard on the highway, it was, it was pretty efficient then. It actually did really well. What did you get for liters per 100K when you were, do you remember? Uh, on the canning at 20 PSI, I remember it got 13 miles a gallon. Which That's not bad. Not bad at all. In like sand for the entire yeah, time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but it, it, it was an interesting- You lose count of the sand dunes, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it was interesting. I realized at one point, you know, we were driving a, a three-month-old or a six-month-old Jeep Gladiator, which sort of was only designed a couple of years before that. Yeah, sure. It's probably the most modern, sophisticated vehicle ever to drive the canning. Mm. And so suspension-wise, drivetrain-wise, it just did the track easily. Yeah. It, nothing. We never spun a tire. We never used low range. Mm. It just walked up every sand dune- and I think that's because it's a vehicle designed in 2019, not- And it's a Jeep. Not 1960. And it's a Jeep. Jeeps are just capable vehicles. They're just meant to be capable off-road. Right. So I think the canning was kind of just an easy- I remember when we did it in the 70 series. Now, we were the first through the track for the year. Nice. So and it and was, I was the last through in, in our it, year. It was- it was bad. We got I, one time we got stuck for fourteen hours. <laughs> oh, it good. was bad. Broke winch lines. It was bad. I mean, it, when I say bad, it means it was perfect. <laughs> well, and <laughs> I had so much fun. But the funny thing about was, that is, you, it was gnarly. You, you want to get stuck and you want it to be a challenge, but only so. Much. <laughs> well, and you were solo vehicle, so there's That's a different. Right. And you had a winch on there. Yeah. Okay. Nice. And then, how did you camp? Did you just camp in a ground tent or? Yeah. So I decided if, if I was going to go to Australia and kind of like explore it for the first time, mm. you know, and, and re, revisit my roots, I went with a swag, mm. which is an Australian ground tent, yeah. kind of like a, a canvas sleeping bag. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just really simple. You just roll it out on the ground. It already has a mattress in it. Yeah. Ready, ready to go. They are really easy to use. Right. The right. only time I found them to be a challenge is, is when you need a little bit more room, you would have to like it. Like, let's say you want to stand up and change your trousers, right? I mean, there's nobody around, so you're not like worried about your privacy, but it's more like you're worried about the flies. Yep. So you end up in this place where you're standing in your swag so that way you don't get dirt inside it. So you're in your socks and you're trying to change out your pants and maybe your chonies or whatever, and there's flies all over you now. That's the only thing I found weird was like, it's tough. I wonder how, the, how do the Australians deal with that? They just maybe... I don't really know either. I think it's, it's like... It's a weird transition well, moment. It's like a fair weather camping option. Yeah, sure. As long as it didn't rain, as long as the flies weren't too bad, yeah. the swag was adequate. And But I think... Did pack- you have bad flies on the yeah. canning? Yeah, the canning and the Simpson, they were... Like oh, they're epic. Bad enough for me to put like a, a bug net over my head. I, yeah, I did too. And it's... Yeah, it's just... It's 
you kind of have to have the bug net. Yeah. Yeah. The way they get in the corner of your eyes and the corner I of your know, mouth. It's unbelievable. It's, yeah. I remember one time I was so exhausted by the flies. I, I took my drone and I just set it over my head. Oh. So I just stood underneath the drone, the blades. Did it work? I was, yeah, no flies. Because <laughs> there's so much wind, right? Yeah. So it's like I, I had like a two minute respite from the flies with my drone just parked over my head it was the only way i could get enough airflow to keep the bugs out of there and i feel like these stories about how bad the flies are i don't think any story will ever do it justice hearing it you're like oh surely they weren't that bad i know i think you have to actually live it you do and then you get to that moment where you're like oh my god this is worse than i ever imagined possible well, and you read some of the early accounts of the explorers that that landed in Australia, and they would talk about the Aboriginal, you know, standing on one leg with their other leg kind of foot cooked up to their hooked up to their knee, and and that they would hardly have any flies on them. And I don't know if it's because they stand perfectly still, or there's some they've learned something or adapted in some way. And then, of course, that whoever the you know, the Kimberly or whoever the explorer was that landed was like the, all of the flies descended on them. You know, that's interesting. I haven't yeah. read that story. Ah, there's a couple, there's a couple really interesting accounts of it was consistent. The explorers would be like, my Lord, the flies, <laughs> huh. you know, yeah, it unbelievable. Feels, it feels like to define the interior of Australia, you know, you could say hot, you could say sand. There's a few words, yeah. but you have to say flies. That that is like a, an adjective that describes. Yeah, it's really unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, it's really wild. And then the fact that they're they don't really know how many camel are out there. Somewhere between a hundred thousand and a million, they think. Yeah, and and have you heard other numbers than that? Or I think, is that? I think I read between a million and one point three. <laughs> so yeah, so it's got to be more. But I think you're right. The distances are so vast. They, they just have no idea. No. They have no idea. We saw them every day on the camera. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, so, it's so cool. So you get the vehicle finished. And was the goal to kind of circumnavigate Australia? Or what was your, what did you want to achieve in your trip? Yeah. My goal was to get as remote as possible. Mm. So the, the most remote parts of Australia, the furthest away from civilization. Mm. I figured if, if I had the ultimate vehicle and I had the time you know, I can go and see the Sydney Opera House another day. Yeah, sure. It's pretty easy to do. Yeah. But driving across the Simpson Desert, that takes real planning. And which track did you take for that? I took the Madigan line. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. That's got a bunch of dunes too. Yeah, a thousand and some yeah. odd. Which it felt like the Canning had a thousand. Same I think thing. the Canning maybe has more. Yeah. But the, the thing that got me about the Simpson is the dunes run directly north-south. Yes. And the track runs directly east-west. Yeah, so, so you're up and down. Every and single down, dune, but... you directly attack it straight yeah. up, straight down. Yeah, which is so cool. And it was weird. It was one of those tracks where after the first 10 dunes, you could just put the video on repeat. Actually, <laughs> for about five days, you wouldn't know that you hadn't weren't just driving over the same dune on, on repeat. You have found yourself now remote in Australia like like you hoped for. Yeah. What did you find what did you find when you were there about yourself or about what you had hoped that you would achieve? Was there anything, any revelations that you had? I guess I have a lot of deep-seated kind of cultural things or emotions or feelings that like I wasn't even aware of. Good. Like even just just sitting out at night and looking at the stars. Mm. And and you've seen the stars in the southern hemisphere. They are just next level yeah. of, of and awesomeness. They're, and they're foreign because I've grown well, up in the northern hemisphere. So. Well, they're foreign for you. Yes. But the feeling of familiarity for me, oh, uh, wow. I, I felt like I was at home. I, wow. It just looked right. Mm. Even though I don't remember the name of the constellations or sure. And, and it had been 20 years, you know, every night when I would look up and see the Southern Cross. Yeah, that, that one's special. In, inside, there was something in me that just went, yeah, yeah, everything's right with the world. I know. And it didn't feel like Africa where I, I knew I was far from home. Yeah. Even the remotest part of Australia felt familiar and felt mm, like home. Like you were supposed to be there. Yeah. And then, and then of course, there were just the wonderful things where, you know, I'd, I'd roll into a town and like someone had offered me a meat pie and I'd be like, <laughs> yes, I would love that. And I'd say, would you like a cup of tea? And I'd say, yeah, yeah, I really, I would like, I would a, cup like a cup of tea. And it, so just, just a million little things like that made me realize I am very Australian. You know, and those roadhouses, they they have a like a cultural component to them. They really are unusual because 
somehow in the middle of nowhere and and they need to be there because that's where the gas station is and there's usually a little bit of accommodation sometimes a place to camp and you've got to have beer and probably food yeah that's right and usually the food's not that bad Mm. and the beer's usually colder than you'd think yep kind of remember some of the ones like along the udinata track and all that and they were the star wars bar they were like definitely (laughs) out there it was wild and the the characters the pink hotel you're probably thinking that's the one yeah yeah, that That's place is, and yeah, a lot of them, they're quirky, they're odd. Super and, quirky. And they celebrate it. Yeah. Yeah. They just embrace embrace that. Oh, and those, okay, so how did the Jeep fare with the corrugations? Again, it was kind of one of those things where I had uh, AEV's two and a half inch suspension on it. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's one of the newest designed, you know, latest and greatest technology. It actually ate up the corrugations in a sense, like they were nothing. And what was the diameter tire you had on there? I had 33-inch tires. Okay, so they, that's pretty close to what a lot of the Land Cruisers are. I've always been curious, and if anybody's listening that's like a an engineer that could respond to this question, but you know, every vehicle that goes across those tracks in Australia, they're pretty much the same wheelbase because they're all the same Land Cruiser. Yeah. So I want, and the wheelbase on the Gladiator is really long. And I wonder if it just creates a different frequency that helps a little bit with that. I wonder. That definitely could be it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, something that occurred to me along the way is that uh, vehicles in Australia, they're allowed to upgrade the the GVWR, the the gross vehicle weight rating. And so all of them do. And they all, like the Land Cruisers, they up them to about a 10,000 pound gross vehicle weight rating. Right. And even then, I met plenty of people that had exceeded that. Sure. And so I think a lot of it is that these vehicles are just immensely heavy. Sure. And then so that, you know, makes the corrugations worse and makes them handle the corrugations worse. Oh, wow. Whereas a Gladiator doesn't have the highest payload, doesn't have the highest weight rating. So I did everything I could to keep it light. So I think part of that was we we were just a light vehicle comparatively to what's out there. And then did you find yourself airing down a lot on the corrugations? Uh, I, I aired down often to maybe about 25, 26 okay. PSI. Not not low, low, like not sand low, yeah. but just lower than kind of highway pressure. That was the only way I could get those 70 series to be tolerable on yep. those corrugations was like 18 to 20 PSI. And we had a couple of revelations as well. We drove the Gibb River Road, uh. which is notorious worst corrugations in Australia, you know, shreds, tires, all yeah. of that. And we were with some friends who were in 70 series and we'd been driving, you know, for the day and just Katie and I, my partner was with me. We were chatting along the way. And when we got to camp, the, the other people in the 70s were like, oh, no, we, we can't talk while we're driving. It's too loud inside the cabin even to have a conversation. So actually they were wearing their own earbuds and just both listening to their own separate music to drown out the noise of the cabin. And, and here, Katie and I, we've got like heated leather seats and like Bluetooth and, you know, heated steering wheel. Yeah, that's right. It, it would just made me realize how different our experiences were yeah because i mean we were essentially in like a luxury four-wheel drive and they were in a tractor from 1970 and that's the thing that it's it's so difficult oftentimes for people to acknowledge is that every vehicle has its specialty and the land cruiser it it has one goal in life and that's to be durable right and the second goal is to be reliable yeah whereas a jeep its first goal is to be capable yes so it's just a different vehicle. And there are going to be times when you wish more than anything in the world you were driving that Gladiator. And there's probably going to be other days you wish more than anything in the world you were driving a 70 series. Well, but, and, and especially once it has, let's say, 400,000 miles. Sure, on, exactly. I'm, I'm pretty sure the Land Cruiser is going to be doing a no lot question. better than the Gladiator. Yeah, no question. So, yeah, you, you're dead right, though. They, they basically have different design goals. They really do. Yeah. And I think it's just embrace the difference. and don't, It's like the, people try to compare stuff that's really not a comparison. Yeah. It's like it's not a competition, you know, I guess. No, and yeah. like they both excel at different things. At different things, exactly. Yeah. So, and, and it was fun to have that comparison in yes. real life. You know, over here, you don't really get to compare a Gladiator to a 70s series because no. there just aren't any around. Right. So it was just fun. And every day it was a different comparison, whether it was a Hilux or a, an Isuzu D-Max or every day you got to put it next to some other vehicle. You're like, oh, look how much longer it is or look look at, you know, whatever aspect it was that was interesting. And how did people re- respond to the Gladiator in remote places? Were they shocked? They or? were shocked. <laughs> they, were, they were legitimately shocked. I love that. And lots of them had- That had to have been fun for you. Oh, it was really fun. Yeah. <laughs> and, and lots of them had never even seen one 
because when I bought it, that only be on sale for about three months in uh, Australia. Got it. So what I think worked really well for us too, my partner Katie, she's Canadian and so obviously has a, a Canadian accent. And so if I let her get out of the Jeep first and start talking, everyone would just assume she was American and that we were obviously Americans in this big American car. <laughs> sure. And then I would get out and start talking and then they would just be so confused. <laughs> what? what you, why would you do that? Like you, you're betraying your own people. <laughs> it's like, well, Toyota had a famous ad in Australia. I love it. I still love it to this day. It's like going into Disneyland and all the roads come to this toll booth. And if you were in a Land Cruiser, they'd let you through the toll booth. It's a famous Toyota ad that they ran in Australia. And if you didn't have a Toyota Land Cruiser, they'd send you back to Sydney or whatever. So I think it is part of their culture. They just believe that the Land Cruiser is the only way. It is the way. A hundred percent. Yep. Talk to me about some of your highlights from the trip. What was what was the the moment, the one moment on the trip that is that's you think about often? It was incredibly special. That was kind of a takeaway for you. Yeah, for me, traveling the Canning Stockrat with my dad. That was, he's 72 years old. Sure. He, he kind of realizes he'll never get to do that kind of thing, certainly not on his own. Yeah. And, and to go with his son is pretty special. And, uh, you know, it's it's intense and, and we had to keep moving because we were right at the end of the season. Mm. And I knew like there were thunderstorms in the north on the track and we were heading north. And it was like, if we don't hurry up and get through, we're not going to get through. And so we had one day where like massive thunderstorms, like building on the horizon, building, building, building. And we could see it coming towards us. And for about 10 minutes, we had like torrential rain, hail, thunder, lightning. And the lightning was so much on top of us that we need to find a tree to like park under. Of course, there aren't any trees. No. So there was none of that. But then there was about two feet of rain on the track, like flowing. It was like a river. And so to just see how quickly it changed mm. and, and to think about like how we were responding to each other and talking through it. And, and I have it on video and, and it's just a, just a really like intense moment of like, oh my God, like this could go really badly. And yeah. like if we get stuck, we're like, we'll be really stuck. And then when we get through and we're kind of celebrating and we're like, oh, that was close. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. And the one challenge that I found was once the track gets flooded, because we got into several areas where the track was flooded, it was so difficult to know if you if you were on the track, you actually didn't sink because it's so compacted. Right. Like I got off the track. So I just zigged when I should have zagged and I got stuck. And that was when we ended up, you know, 14 hours trying to get out. But it was very difficult when it got wet. For sure. Yeah. And it, it just feels like it adds to the intensity of the whole thing. You know, I was already the most remote I'd ever been in my whole life, you know. And you were solo, which that's impress vehicle, impressive. Yeah. And, solo and, you know, kind of travel. all of the things, like the most fuel I've ever carried, the most water, the most planning. Yeah. So I was, I was already, I felt like approaching my limit of what I'm capable of. Yeah. And then we added like a whole nother dimension of like, oh, now it's getting really wet and muddy yeah. and and then it was like, have I bitten off more than I can choose? Sure. And then you get in that exciting zone of like, I think I've got this, but let's like be careful and be aware and like yeah. good decision making, you know, like because the worst is here because it, like you said, if something goes wrong, yeah. it can be really bad. And I remember like the worst flooding areas were just south uh, and you went from south to north. That's right. Okay. So as I remember, the worst areas of lowland kind of flooding was south of Kinnawarachi. So Hopefully you didn't get into a lot of that when you got into the rain where it was really muddy and big lakes, I guess. Yeah. We, we encountered big, big lakes we on had, the track. Uh, the day it rained, actually, later in the day, we had to drive across a couple of kind of like dry lake beds or what are normally dry. Yeah. And they were damp and I was hyper worried we were just going to sink to the frame. Yeah. And we just didn't. We oh, just, that's great. Was, even though it was wet, it was firm. And so we just went straight to the other side. And <laughs> Did you oh. camp on Lake Aerodrome in the beginning of the track? It drew one of the dry lake beds in the beginning. It's called Lake Aerodrome. I don't remember that one specifically. Oh, it's just, I just, you, you've talked about the stars and it was warm and I slept on the top of the Land Cruiser on the rack. This incredible dry lake bed and the stars were just from from horizon to horizon. It was incredible. Just incredible. It's a special thing to see, isn't yeah. it? And that, that idea of like you, the Milky Way is so bright that mm. you don't need a headlamp no. to, to be outside. Oh, it, yeah. It was just, it was just incredible. And there's no planes flying overhead. There's like, there's no kind of interruptions. And there's a lot more. I think a lot of people consider that the canning stock is just this big desert crossing, which in many ways it is. But 
I was shocked by how many microclimates, how many geologic formations. What's that one? You're going along the track and you kind of go back in and camp in this little canyon with that has the Aboriginal art and stuff. What do you remember the name oh, of that one? I know exactly what you mean. But that's a really special spot. Yeah, there's some amazing like rock formations and almost mountains back in there. And then water. I mean, how many wells are there along there? 40 something wells? 51. 51. Got it. Yeah. But um, actually, because we were there so late in the season, virtually all the wells were dry. Oh, wow. Yeah. Or well, they just had like really stagnant, murky, kind sure. of like unusable. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's a different experience from the start of the season to the end of the season. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Yeah. All right. So the canning stock was a highlight. Was there an experience that would be less than common where maybe the listener, I, I would have no idea where you were that you were like, wow, that was a discovery, like a place that you went to that not a lot of people go to. Did you go to the Kimberley as well? Uh, I did go to the Kimberley. I've never gone yeah. to the Kimberley and I've heard it's just fascinating up there. It's staggering in its like emptiness and yeah. its vastness. It's, yeah. it's immense. Yeah. I was, I was looking and there was like, it was over a thousand kilometers just to get, I think from broom, broom to like with this one spot I wanted to go to it was like a thousand yeah. kilometers. And it's just this little corner of Australia. That's right. Yeah. On the map, it's barely even like noticeable. Yeah. yeah but it's, it's a long distance. And there's boab trees up there. So they, yeah. they look just like the boabs from Africa. Yeah. And you're the red dirt, the dust, the sun. Every single day, I just pinched myself and, and thought I was in Africa. Wow. It was, it was staggering. And, you know, that's my home country and I didn't even recognize it. And then did you do anything up? North of Cairns or anything like that? I did, did you- yeah. We, we drove all the way up and drove the old Telegraph track. Yeah, sure. Which was the, the most intense four-wheel driving I've ever done in my yeah. life. And that was that was really special because it's it's a really social thing to do. There, there are many other vehicles around you. And some people are driving everything with their foot on the floor. And some people are struggling and kind of barely able to winch through things. And then, mm-hmm. and then like everything in between. Yeah. And every night people are camping and swimming in the rivers and partying. And, and so it's a real like... Some of the river crossings you get to, people have set up their deck chairs and for two days they will just sit there and watch other vehicles come through because like 10% of vehicles will just sink and yes. then flood and then there's carnage. And or, or you and aren't up, there crocs in those rivers too? Uh, probably not. Probably not. <laughs> probably not. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which I learned in Northern Australia is good enough for, yeah, that'll work. Probably not because <laughs> those crocs are gigantic. Yeah. I mean, some of the photographs that I've oh, seen of those crocs that yeah. they've captured, yeah. are it's it's unfathomable. Yeah. I think Just, like 16, 18, 20 feet is like common. They, they exist. And in the olden days, they were more like 28 feet, maybe 30 I, feet. I know. Yeah. Like, some of the photos, they look like they are Photoshopped, but of course they're not because it's an old photo. We even, we, at one point, we went to a visitor center somewhere and they have a replica of the big croc that used to live nearby. And, you know, it's made out of fiberglass or whatever. And just being near it was intimidating. Terrifying. And you're like, this, I mean, it's a piece of fiberglass. It can't hurt me. But it, it, it's fully a dinosaur in every, like, sense of the word. It's, it must just be, like, you probably experience this a lot in Africa. But it, you know that there are these components of our human DNA that are still meant to protect us from getting eaten. And they still work. Like, the first time that I heard a lion roar, oh. like I and I have no hair on my head, but all of the non-hair stood up on my, on my neck and on my head. Because yeah. like, I knew, I didn't, I'd never heard a lion roar before, but yeah. I had no question of what that was. I knew exactly what it was. Yeah, and what it represents. Yes. And, like, how long has it been since our DNA even was in Africa? Yeah. But we know. We do yeah. know. It is incredible. And, the, and there's something about a croc that's the same. Because the croc, you know, like lions are fairly bright. Like they can like assess risk and like, do I really want to take this two-legged thing on? And what do they represent? And they sometimes they have guns and like yeah. they you can tell that they have some thought process. No the doubt. croc, you are just protein. A hundred percent. And and we read or we were told crocodiles are classified as indiscriminate opportunistic eaters. <laughs> yeah. So they're indiscriminate, they will eat anything yeah. and they will just wait until the opportunity comes <laughs> along. So they will literally just sit on the bottom of the river for like days and days and days. And then a kangaroo comes down to take a drink. Sweet. There's there's dinner. Yeah. Or a person happens to like, you know, go to wash their hands. They're like, oh, this is lucky. And and they've got all the patients in the world. Unbelievable. And, and they will eat 
anything. And the power that they've got too. Yeah, I think like if they get a hold of you, that's there is no chance. So you you did, I mean, you literally did all of the really good stuff. Did you now did you make it to Tasmania? I did. Yeah, I spent 10 weeks in Tasmania. So now there's the I did part of that track where you go into Tasmania and it's on the western side and it goes back to like an old town where they had some mines and a beautiful old cemetery. It's the most difficult four-wheel drive track. Oh, yeah. I think I know the one you mean. Yeah. Yeah, I did not tackle that. Because it it can be really muddy and deep. And I only did half of it because I was concerned about the mud. Yeah. But that was beautiful. Tasmania was just incredible. When you asked me earlier about things that shocked me about Australia, I was going to say Tasmania, the old growth forest, the mountains. I had no idea that Tasmania has legitimate mountains. Oh, yeah. Like... Even, you know, I live in British Columbia or I lived in the Yukon. In Tasmania, I was impressed. I was like, these are serious mountains, Mm snow-capped, you know, jagged peaks, and then old-growth trees, probably the oldest trees in the world, are in Tasmania. And and the wilderness there, it was more untouched than anything I've seen before. I found that too, and I I think that it was populated late enough that people, there was starting to be some environmental protections in place in Australia, so it just never got ruined. That's right. It yeah. seems like that. Yeah. And the, you know. the whole southwest corner, there are no roads. There yeah. is no access of any kind. It is just pure. That's where I still goodness. hope, fingers crossed, that there's a Tasmanian devil down there. Exactly. Not devil, Tasmanian tiger. 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 Yeah. People, I mean, you'll hear the occasional rumor that they found one, but oh man, wouldn't that be cool? What an amazing creature. It's, and the fact that human beings screwed that up. Yeah. It's like that thing is so cool. When the jaws open, unbelievable. And and a marsupial with a pouch, yeah. like a kangaroo, but the pouch is actually backwards. Oh that I didn't yeah, know. Yeah, the pouch opens the other way. Oh, it's wild. the only marsupial like that. And and the only carnivorous marsupial. So just just you know in Australia and its exotic animals, it just is incredible. It's unbelievable. And it's and it was really fun for me because in my whole life, I think I'd only ever seen like one platypus. But now that I had time in, in Tasmania, we would just sit on the side of a creek and watch a platypus for like an hour. Oh wow. And they're they're incredible little creatures. And they see you and they get timid, and then 10 minutes later they come back, and then 10 minutes, and then soon enough, they're sort of every three or four minutes, they're coming up to have a look at you. And it just those experiences that I, I guess as an Australian, I've seen David Attenborough talk about it, mm. but then to actually go and live it, it felt like the right thing to do. Well, and that's that's one of the things that you've done on your trip, Stan, is you you work really, really hard between your trips to make enough money to be fully present in the adventure. You know, just from speaking from my own experience, I've never been able to do that. I Well, that's I should correct myself. I have never done that. I've made a choice to not do it. So I'll I'll work really, really hard between trips and then I work really, really hard on the trip. Yeah. And I never give myself that chance to sit at the creek's edge and watch the platypus for an hour. And maybe I've had moments like that, but that's one of the things that I admire most about your travels is that you have found ways to be fully in the moment. And that people don't normally figure that out until much later in life. And it was something that I wanted to ask you was, how did you get to that point where you have right now you have a cell phone with a SIM card that's only going to last 30 days. The last time that I met you, we had to coordinate over email because you didn't have a phone. And that's something I admire about you. But how did you get to that point where you you really were able to be present, to be in the now? What what happened to get you there? I think it was a combination of factors, but I, I finished all my schooling in Australia. So like high school, straight into university, and then I was totally fed up. And so I, I came out to the States and I worked in California at a ski resort. And I just met a handful of people at that ski resort who they hadn't been to university and they weren't taking life very seriously, but they were having a good time. They, they understood the like, let's just take Frisbees and go and throw Frisbees in the park for half the day it's free mm. and we're going to have fun and yeah. we're going to laugh or, yeah, sure. or let's hike to the top of the ski resort and snowboard down before it even opens in the morning so we can get the best snow mm. before anyone who paid, you know, to, to ride the chairlift. Sure. And so I guess maybe these days people would call it like a life hack or they, they had figured out how to have a lot of fun without a lot of money. Mm. And, and so I had that in my mind and then I ran out of money. So I went back to an engineering job and sitting at that engineering job, some of my coworkers were in their 60s. And after about a year, I just realized I was looking in a mirror 
they were living, that was my life. That's I, where I, you were going to end up. 100%. I was on that track. You know, I had a pretty good job. My bank account was going up every two weeks. I didn't really have much stress or much to worry about. I, I could have gone out and bought a brand new sports car. Like I, I could have done a lot of, you know, consumerism things. But the trade-off was I didn't get to have that fun that, that those guys in California had taught me about. Yeah. And it actually, in hindsight, like it scared me to my bones. But I'm, I'm terrified that I'm looking at myself and the years between now and that are just going to go by in the blink of an eye. Mm. And I was so terrified that it motivated me to like quit my job, sell all my stuff and, and hit the road and drive mm. to Alaska. Like, Because up until then, I'd always dreamed of going to Alaska Mum and I read like White Fang together and, and sure. Call of the Wild, and and I was enamoured or like obsessed with this idea of like I want to go and see Alaska. I'd never been there before. I didn't really know much about it. I, I guess I knew it had big mountains, and that's about it. And then I, I was yeah, I, I motivated myself, and I just went for it. And ever since then, I've I've kind of focused on that dream of mm. like the goal is to be out there having experiences not to be sitting inside earning money. Mm. And and I try really hard to always remind myself. And, and I have posters on my wall. I print out my own photos and like put them when I open my laptop, my desktop background is like somewhere that I want to be mm. to always remind me of like, what's the goal? What am I working towards? Mm. And do you feel like that in that moment of terror of what your future may look like, do you feel like that now over a decade that you've been doing this, do you feel like that you're there, like that you're that you're honoring that that part of you that you you didn't want to be that guy? I think it comes and it goes. Mm. But it, when I'm on the adventure, you know, when I'm on the canning and I'm looking at the stars, I say, yeah, it was all worth it, a hundred percent. But of course, there's the days where I'm at home on my laptop all day editing photos or editing a video or whatever it happens to be. Mm. When it, and and I think while it's difficult to do that, I think it's important to get the balance. Mm. Because I think if I just was on adventure all of the time, I wouldn't appreciate it nearly as much. I do find that too. Yeah. And I do, I really love the creative process. Mm -hmm. I do like seeing the adventure come to life in mostly in my photographs, but you know, like stuff like producing the podcast is there's a lot of joy for that yeah. to me. Yeah, for sure. These conversations. And a big part of it for me, I've realized about myself is that I actually don't want my life to be easy. Mm. I feel like an easy life maybe isn't very fulfilling. Mm. And and at the end of every day, you're not going to sort of hit the pillow exhausted and be like, oh, my God, like I filled up today and I'm like I'm tapped out. It, easy life is probably not very rewarding. Mm. So in a sense, I'm aware that like I chose to drive West Africa because it was difficult and, yeah. and it was. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And and most nights I hit the pillow at 7 p.m. I was so exhausted yeah. and slept through until sunrise. So I think in a lot of ways, like the hardest things I've ever done are also the most rewarding for mm -hmm. me. Yeah. And, and so there's that, there's that consciousness of like I'm seeking out hard stuff. But do you think that, I mean, this is maybe more of a philosophical question, but because I've had similar experiences where like I'm getting stuck for 14 hours, I was just overjoyed. Like I loved it. I loved the challenge of it. Some of the people that were on the trip were terrified, but I, th I found for me that I just really loved the difficulty of it. But I, I think human beings are meant to do hard things. We're, we're meant to walk or run 20 miles. We're meant to run down our prey oftentimes. Yeah. We're meant to carry heavy things, you know, that we're the only, the only animal that can with, you know, with our own hands, we grab and we carry heavy things. Nothing else does that. So I think human, I mean, all animals are able to very difficult things, but humans being the fact that we have our, that we're conscious of it. I think we're meant to do that. I think we're meant to do hard things. And like we were saying, you know, that the roar of the lion is in our DNA. I had a similar experience when I moved up to the Yukon. Uh, I lived there for a summer and then like winter was coming and I got invited out to go moose hunting. And I'd never been before, didn't know anything about it. And, and so my friends, like, they shoot this moose and it takes us about 12 hours to butcher it up to put it in the canoes so we can keep canoeing down the river. And I had this feeling in my bones of, like, this is what I'm meant to be doing, kneeling on the side of a river, hard labour. There's, like, a dusting of snow on the distant mountains, like, minus 40 is only a month away. I am collecting food for my survival mm -hmm. right now. And the only reason I'm alive is because my ancestors have been doing this for... Forever. Forever. And if they didn't do it, if they were bad at it, 
I wouldn't be here. That's right. And and it, it, I'm getting goosebumps now remembering that deep, deep feeling within me of like, this is what I'm meant to do. Mm. I'm meant to struggle for my own survival. And maybe struggle is the wrong word. You know, we... we, we like you, I think you said it right. I like that. I like how you describe it. We're meant to do hard things. And the most unhappy people in my life are the ones that avoid it at all cost. And I think that they just don't get the satisfaction of accomplishing something that sucks. That's hard. I agree. And that the feeling of achievement, and, and even if it's something mundane, like, I don't know, your water pipe burst and you, and you have to dig out some tree roots from the water pipe and like, it's, it's fairly mundane manual labor. But at the end of it, you can sit down and say, I achieved that. And, yeah. and look at that thing is now in the real physical world, that thing is like fixed and functioning because of my labor. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that is important to... Well, to my happiness, I don't know about for everyone. Yeah, yeah, everybody's different. Yeah. But I think human beings in general were meant to do that stuff. It's what we've been doing for a very long time. Yeah. So it is part of our makeup. And yeah. It is part of what feels fulfilling to us. Yeah. Because how else would we be alive? No, that's those are great insights. And, and it's important to remember to pick hard things every once in a while at least. Well, and I think the temptation is always to... To, you know, let's say I want to drive to Alaska, the, the temptation is to like, oh, and I could bring a diesel heater and I could have a hot shower and like more and more and more luxury to the point where at some point you cross the line of like, so it's as comfortable as if I'm at home. And then is it even a challenge? Mm. Will, will you come back from that trip and say, we had these amazing experiences and it was incredible? Or will you come back and say like, yeah, hey, it was nice. Yeah, I had a good time. Yeah. And I guess maybe at the end of the day, through the windscreen, they saw the scenery that they wanted to see, but none of the experience matched the environment. Right. Because you, yeah. you're separating yourself from the environment. So isolated. You're separating yourself from the hardships to yeah. some degree. Yeah. Interesting. But of course, we always, or I always want things to be a certain level of challenging, like, like getting stuck for 14 hours for you was like exhilarating, but obviously getting stuck for 14 days is not so good. No. And it crosses over a line of like, okay, now I'm genuinely like, this is bad. I'm in trouble. Like, yeah. And I was starting to realize that because we only, we, at one point we had one option left. With three Land Cruisers, and yeah. that's not good. No. So no, when if all of them had been severely stuck, yeah, then it's purely down to manpower and, and yeah, travel we, time. Two two winches broke, and we had one left, and we had every single thing in the recovery kit strapped together to make three four hundred feet. Of wow, a pool. yeah, that's a long pull. And it was the the last Plan C, which is the last plan we had, was and, the one that worked. And it is funny because now all these years later, you're sitting here telling me that story. Because it's the memorable part of the for camp sure. for you. Yeah, for it's sure. Maybe the memorable part of Australia for you was like, yeah, when the going got tough, mm. we stepped up and now we feel really good about oh, it. I love and, it. And we have that feeling of like achievement. Yeah, yeah. totally. And yeah. I, I thought that Kinoarachi was very cool. I don't know how much it's developed. I was there in 2013 and you were there almost 10 years later. They had just built maybe three or four little cabins combined together, like little places to stay. Okay. Did, was that still there when you were there? Yeah, that's still there. And there's a general store now. Yeah, there had, was a general store yeah, there. Yeah, like basic supplies. And the the gas pumps were like credit card swipe. Oh. So kind of like automated, you know, you swipe your credit that. card and then you self-serve. It wasn't that when yeah. I was there. But they had just installed some pumps. So before that, like maybe even the season before I did it, you used to have to order your fuel in advance and they would bring it out in drums and put your name put yeah. your name on it. And you had to hope that your drum was still there yeah, yeah. and that it wasn't half full of water. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all of that. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, every year we get more development and, and things get easier. Yeah, they do yeah. get a little easier. But that is still a very yeah. difficult track. By far is the hardest track I've ever done in my yeah. life. Which yeah, it's hard on the vehicle. Strangely enough, it's also the best track I've ever done yeah. in my life. Yeah. yeah, along the lines of what we were talking about. You finished your Australia trip, and now you have you have built a new vehicle. Let's talk a little bit about what you just built. Uh, I feel like I've learned a lot over the years about what I'm looking for, and I really I distilled it down to three things that I, I always want to improve on what I've done in the past. And so I wanted better interior living space was number one. The ability to stand up and walk around mm -hmm. is really nice to have out of the elements. I wanted to get better fuel mileage than ever before. Basically, not only because of the expense, but also because carrying 250 litres of fuel, 
that's just an enormous amount of weight. It is. And, and it's really limiting on you just can't go as remote. You can't go as far out into the, the nowhere. Yeah. Um, same, you know, with if, if you're carrying that much fuel, you just can't carry enough food and water. And the third thing that I was looking for was an improvement in payload. Mm. And so the ability to carry more stuff just means I can get more remote or I can stay out for longer. And I felt like it was really helpful to have those criteria and be pretty strict about them Mm -hmm. because then when an option gets presented, someone says, hey, why don't you get a Tacoma and put a four-wheel camper on it? I think that is a great vehicle and I would love to have one, but does it get better than my 20 miles a gallon I got in my little TJ to Argentina? No, it does not. It's off my list. And, And I was like really strict about that because I think right now we're spoiled for choice. Yeah, and which is amazing. It's an incredible time, but the hard part isn't actually like the problem is that we have too many choices. Mm. And and today at the show, many, many people were asking me, oh, well, I'm thinking about this and, and then I'm thinking about this. And, and they would just list 10 options that are all pretty workable, but how are they going to decide? They're all, they're stressing because they can't decide. Go with the cheapest one. Yeah. <laughs> or go you, with, spend, you can spend more money on other things. Yeah. Go with the one you already have. And yeah, sure. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. And, and those three criteria really drove my decision making. Mm. And, and Jeeps have been, you know, really good for my adventures and they've always taken me where I wanted to go. And actually, an engineer reached out to me. He's, he's come up with a crazy plan. To some degree, he's recreating AEV's Outpost 2. Mm. So take a Wrangler and cut it off right behind the B-pillars, throw away all that sheet metal and bodywork, which turns out to be about 700 pounds. He weighed it as he took it all off. Yeah. And then graft on a carbon fibre composite shell box that can be like a living box with a big pass through with a pop-up roof and interestingly it weighs less than 700 pounds oh wow so so in a strange way while we've massively increased the livability of the vehicle we actually made it lighter mm. so we increased the payload while making it better at the same time and is that what you your new is your, your new vehicle though is a gladiator no no oh, it's my, a ra- my it's new a, vehicle is actually a wrangler it's a wrangler okay yes. it looks it just looks like a pickup truck right and and we've been trying to wrap our heads around it because it's been in cad design for so long michael has been working on it for a very long time the interior floor plan it actually has the size of the bed of two jeep gladiators would fit inside of it wow inside of a jeep wrangler and you're like, how can that be possible? But it is. It's every it, time we put a tape measure on it, we get confused and we scratch our heads. And then when you walk outside, you're like, but it's just a Wrangler. It's not yeah. very big. It doesn't have a long wheelbase. Yeah, it's it's a real head scratcher, just like the Outpost 2. Sure. Like you've been inside of it. Yeah, I have. You, you sit inside of it and you, you're so far away from the other person, you know, you can't easily pass them something. Yeah. But then when you step outside, you're like, Hang on a minute. Yeah. It, it's like um, Alice in Wonderland or, or the TARDIS from yeah. um, Doctor Who, where the inside space is not representative by the Somehow. Yeah, yeah, somehow. Yeah. Uh, well, it looks great. And it looks, I mean, I, the current iteration, which I saw on your Instagram account, it, let, let's just give that to people while they're listening so they can check that out. For so. sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm the road chose me on Instagram. And the engineer who has designed and manufactured and, and come up with all the genius his name is Michael Fuchs, and his Instagram is Wabi Sabi Overland. Yeah, nice. Oh, Wabi Sabi is an interesting topic all in and of itself. He's so. a very interesting character. Yeah. No, those that are listening, look up Wabi Sabi. It's a Japanese term. It's kind of a neat one. So you've got the camper on the back, but you really haven't modified the Jeep quite yet. No. It looks like it's mostly stock. That's right. All right. So let's talk about, if you can, let's talk about where you're going. Or are you waiting on that one? I've found that it's really hard to talk about where I'm going uh-huh. because no matter what I plan, the world throws challenges. Yeah, sure. So I remember last time we had this conversation, I was longing to go to Central Asia and yeah. Kazakhstan, Mongolia. Like, yeah. It's a dream for me. But, of course, the Russia-Ukraine sure. situation is really difficult. Makes it impossible. You know, and then COVID came along and really limited my options. So at this stage, I just am saving money and I'm yeah. dreaming and I'm planning I feel like I have like two or three dream trips mm. and I'm just going to forge ahead until one of them actually can come true. Because Perfect. because the most important thing is that a trip happens and, you know, if, if it's this one before that one, mm-hmm. that, that doesn't really matter to me. No, probably yeah. not. And, and, you know, if the situation in Ukraine and Russia changes, maybe that's what it'll be. Yeah. But if it doesn't change, I have to move on to some other plan. Although there's some interesting routes that people are taking now where they're they're really going far south through mm-hmm. Central Asia. 
Right. And including including going through Jordan and Iraq um, so that they don't even go through Iran at all. Right. People are really trying to avoid Iran. It's very, it's very interesting. Yeah. The last few groups of overlanders have been arrested and detained yeah. and yeah. in trouble. Yeah. Because it, it traditionally has sort of been, yeah, either you go north through Russia or sort of south through Iran and then into the stands. Yeah. I guess we have to adapt and we have to come up with new routes. Yeah, constantly. Even East Africa right now is a real challenge because it, Ethiopia it, just changed all of their rules and, yeah. and the war in Sudan is, is bad right now. Yeah, and that's the direction that I'm heading. So we'll see. Fortunately, it's Africa, so things will change. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm actually not worried about and, it at all. And as they say in Africa, there is always a way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. I'm already figuring out the ways. So, <laughs> and there's ways. We'll see. Yeah. And, and again, sometimes those challenges are, are what make the trip exciting. Yeah. It's not supposed to be Disneyland. Well, it, it was easy. Yeah. Like, one, everyone would be doing it. And, and two, it wouldn't be all that rewarding. Yeah. yeah I don't think so. We wouldn't be talking about it next time we meet up. You've got the vehicle in process. What else do you think you're going to be during this time when you're not traveling? You're going to be focusing on, on some of your tech work. And then building out the Jeep. What what's the next stage for the Jeep? What's the next so the next, iteration for that? The next stage is kind of all of the like traditional Jeep modifications. So I've got front and rear bumpers to go on, suspension, a winch, um, kind of, you know, all of the, the more traditional kind of upgrades that people would do to, to make it, you know, more capable off-road and sure. more durable. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Well, that'll be fun. Yeah, it's, it's sort of the traditional, like, you know, just just turn wrenches and, mm-hmm. and follow instructions and kind of like easy but like really good reward you know when, when the job is done some other questions and i don't even remember if i asked you these questions in that first podcast because i've since kind of developed now my my uh, repertoire of, I, of I, questions. I was the test case you were definitely the test case <laughs> we were in we were in chris cordez and and britney's uh sprinter van somehow we were all packed in there yep. and we yeah we had that conversation with you so uh, one of the questions that I like to ask, and I think you're just, uh, I can't wait to hear the time that you spend on it, but if someone is new to overlanding and, and they ask you, what advice do you have for me? Or if you were to give advice to the Dan Grek of right before you left for that trip to Ushuaia, what advice would you have given your former self or what advice would you give someone else about getting ready to do their first big overland trip? I feel like the most important thing is to understand why you want to go and and what is it that makes you passionate about going. And I know, you know, some people are right into the culture and and the minute they hit Mexico, they they really want to learn Spanish and they really want to get into street food and and two of them the mezcal plants or whatever it is. And for them that is like their passion. Other people they say we actually don't we're not interested in that at all but we're into fly fishing and we're mm. going to bring our fly fishing rods or, and we could go on all week, whether it's kayaking or hiking or mm. for me, originally it was actually finding wilderness hot springs. Mm. I was just enamored by them. And, and so I had this little Jeep and I thought, how far back into the wilderness can I get to find a hot spring with nobody there? You know? Sure. Yeah. And, and so for me, I think my biggest advice is like, don't worry what other people are doing or what other people say you have to bring. Mm. Just do what makes you happy. And and if it's sitting by a stream reading a book, like that's a phenomenal reason to get out in the backcountry. Mm-hmm. And then your decisions around vehicle and length of trip and duration of time and, and all of those things will fall into place based around what it is that you love about your trip. Because yeah, I think it's, it's really important to remember that everybody's trip is different. And you need to focus on tailoring it for you. Don't just follow someone else's kind of, you know, step-by-step guide. Yeah, and, and maybe that's one of the challenges that we have as a community is that everyone's trips are so present in our Instagram feed or whatever we're looking at, a YouTube channel, whatever, that it's, I think we'll see a lot of that. Maybe like you saw in Australia where all of the Land Cruisers look exactly the same. And really, those three or four people are they're very different people. Right. So maybe the the vehicle and the trip should just reflect as much of us as it can. Yeah. And and I think it's difficult, too, because, you know, if I was giving this advice to myself, I would say, but I don't know, like I've never done this before. And and so you don't know if you if you've never tried so the next piece of advice has to be just just get out there and start trying. Yeah. And probably like weekend trips are where you begin. And then maybe, you know, a long weekend when you've got Monday off work. 
And then at some point, there could be like a week long, a two week mm. trip. And in each of those trips, you will start to learn. We really love cooking, so we would like to have a good fridge and a good kitchen set up. Sure. Other people, they couldn't care less about cooking and they'll just, you know, they'll eat frozen whatever. But again, that's just it, both trips are valid. It's it's not one is better than the other. Everybody's it, a little different. Yeah. And and learn and discover what you're excited about so that you haven't already gone out and bought the world's best fridge, yeah. but it turns out you don't even actually care about cooking that much. Yeah. It, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Probably. Or if you're in, in Baja, do you even really need a fridge? I like, actually There's met- so many good tacos in Baja. Oh. Like, why bring a fridge? And cheaper than like, well, <laughs> of like, course. You could live there for 10 yeah. years and not spend as much money on tacos as one fridge. I was always so shocked why people would drive to Baja with a full fridge. Like, they went to the store in the United States and bought food that was made in Mexico. <laughs> I mean, the, the vegetables are almost all grown down there. Go down to Mexico with an empty fridge or no fridge at all because there's plenty of amazing food down yeah, there. You yeah. don't even need it. <laughs> and I actually met people on the Pan American who got rid of their fridge because they said it just takes up space and we eat street food every day anyway. Because it's so cheap and it's so good. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. And and so a part of that is just discovering what yeah. what is your passion and, and what do you want the trip to be about. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And do you feel like all these years later that you've been able to do your trips the way that you want to? I do. Yeah, I do. Great. Yeah. I, I feel really lucky that, like you said, I, I prioritize time. Mm. And at some point I made the decision of like, I'm going to try and spend the least amount of money I can, yeah. which has its downsides. But that meant, you know, the, the Pan American I thought would take one year and I ended up spending two. Mm. Africa I thought would take two years and I ended up spending three. Yeah. Because I just realized I'm like, I'm here. I have the vehicle. Like all the stars are aligned. This is my one chance, you know, to explore Angola. This yeah. is maybe the only time I'll ever be in the Congo. Yeah. Why would I rush if, if there's an opportunity to just slow down a bit and like, oh, it's midday but there's a safe place to camp. Maybe I'll just hang out in this village for the rest of the day. Mm. Yeah, really, really like try and like soak in as much as I possibly could. Yeah, I'm going to try to start doing that more. I've never really let myself do that, which is interesting. And and there's there's a balance to be yeah. to be found. Obviously, going too slow, you mm. start to lose a bit of po- purpose and focus. Yeah. So and everyone has their own rhythm. Yeah. But yeah, it's just an interesting balance of like, what is it that you're excited about? And make sure you're doing lots of that. Yeah, great advice. I like that. Yeah, do more of the stuff that makes you happy. Yeah, yeah. And, and to <laughs> we emphasize- should all be doing that in all parts of our life. And to emphasize again, like for each person, that's a different thing. It is. And yeah. then and then feel comfortable saying no to the things that you don't like, no matter what it is. Yeah, right. put, put those boundaries in place. All right. So then the last question that we do now ask a lot is... Have you recently or in the, you know, in the, in all of your travels, I'm sure you've done a lot of reading. Are there some books that you have found that you, that you love, that you loved to read? I mean, you've, you've created your own books, which is impressive, but, and we'll talk about that in a second, but what are some favorite reads for you? Favorite read of all time is still Ted Simon, Jupiter's Travels. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Yeah. So was that 10 years he was traveling, wasn't it? Uh, his first trip was about four years. Four years. And then, and then he did it all again in right. four years. Right. And and I love it because Ted was just an ordinary guy. He didn't have sponsors. He didn't even have a motorbike license. And he just came up with this wacky idea to ride a motorbike around the world. Yeah. And he did it. And, and he didn't have any like you know, qualifications, National Geographic weren't supporting him. He just was like, I have this dream and I want to make it come true. Mm. And he made it come true through sheer force of will. Yeah, yeah. that's so, a good one. Yeah, so that that message that I take away from it, that inspires me to be, some days I say to myself, like, come on, Ted did it, you can do it too. Like, yeah. Yeah, let's, let's go for it. Like, make it happen. It, it's time for you to step up and make your dreams come true. So let's talk about, your books. So let's, let's, you've got three books out now. Uh, two written books and one photography yeah, that's, book. That's right. The photography book. That's right. And what are the two, uh, the two story books that you put out so on I've your got adventures? The Road Chose Me Volume One, which is the story of the Alaska to Argentina trip. And that really does begin with me not knowing anything. I'd never heard the word overlanding. I'd never crossed the border. I, I didn't speak a word of Spanish. And I just went for it. They, Ted inspired me and I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to go for it and, and like see what happens. And, and that changed my life without yeah. doubt. Um, and then the second book is called The Road Chose Me, Volume 2, Creatively Enough. And that is the story of my three years around Africa. Yeah. Um, and that book, it's it's a very big book because there was a lot 
a lot of things that happened and and I felt a real um I felt a responsibility to do right by Africa because it did so right by me. It came across in that way very much so when I when I read it and I also liked it has a little bit of a travel guide tone to it, but it also has a little bit of a philosophy tone to it, which I liked. And then you did a really, like you said, you did a really good job of of honoring all of those places for the for the wonder that they are. So yeah, and and the way that people treated me, like yeah. I, I was always told, you know, people would treat me well and, and people were friendly, and but of course I was scared, and you know, yeah. the, the media has told me it's dangerous, but. Hundreds and hundreds of times, people invited me into their village. Yes, yes, you can camp right here. Like, please come. These are my children. Like, and a couple of times, you know, I was exhausted by myself. It, it would bring tears to my eyes. Yeah, but, you know, I, I'm a pretty strange kindness, guy. I'm, kindness, yeah. you know, different color skin in this big four wheel drive, and they would just treat me so unbelievably well. Yeah, for no reason, for for no gain of their own. Yeah, yeah, just being good humans. Just being good humans. Yeah, yeah. and that is that is the impression or that the overall lasting image for me of Africa mm. and it's the reason that I want to go back you know like elephants are cool and, and lions were fun and but it, even if I went back to Africa and didn't see any I would not be disappointed mm. in the least you know I would just go to remote villages and hang out with people mm. like that's why I want to go back I like that let's talk about how people can find out more about you obviously the road chose me on all of the social things that's right um, you're on Instagram great photography you write you write for Overland Journal on a regular basis and other publications too, because your stories are are just incredible and they've been such an inspiration for so many. One of the things I've seen, no, I've noticed that you've really spent a lot more time on is your video work now. That's right. So, yeah. and, and you're on YouTube primarily. That's right. Yeah, YouTube is the road chose me, and and I'm kind of again walking that line of like teaching people how to do it and also inspiring them by showing them what it looks like when, when you do go for it. Yeah, so take a look at all of Dan's stuff. It's great. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's been such a great opportunity for us to have you in the magazine so many times and your stories your stories are just great and I love the fact that you started off with that soft top Wrangler cuz like you can really only have your first trip first first trip and yours was so out of the norm in such a great way. I mean, we've talked about it in the podcast many times of like when people are saying all they need all this stuff. I just say, remember, Dan Greck drove the entire length of the Pan American in a soft top two door TJ with a four cylinder and five speed manual and no modifications. None. No air conditioning. Nothing. No. That's, I think, the story of this podcast, again, is just get out there and do it no matter what you got. Yeah, no doubt. That that has always got to be the message is like, just go for it. Have, have experiences, have adventures. Yeah. Well, Dan, it's a pleasure having you on the podcast again. Uh, I can't wait till we get to do number three after whatever this next version of adventure that you're going to have. Uh, we appreciate your time and we thank you all for listening and we'll talk to you next time. 